Last week we continued our series in the book of Romans and we got to verse 8 of chapter 8 and I told you we were going to do a brief two-week study of this one verse. And that's because the verse itself is just so important and, and it's such a hinge for understanding the, the entire chapter. Now last week, uh, we said that we had to understand that this is connected to what we studied in verses 26 and 27. And I'm not going to go and review all of that again, but if you haven't listened to that message, you may want to, only to understand that these groanings that we have are, are really the spirit-inspired groanings, similar to the groanings of the very earth, of the futility of this fallen world, and that God takes those groanings and, and brings them before his very throne and answers them as prayers that are in accordance with his will. And that's why all things work together for good. All things cannot work together for good if all things don't work together for God's will. Because God's will is always good. And so if everything works together for God's will, everything works together for good, and if our prayers are turned into that which is keeping with God's will, then every one of your prayers, prayed in Jesus' name, will come true, and it will be perfect in accordance with his will. And if he does not answer it, it's because it's not his will. And that means that, that whatever happens, happens for our good. And, and this is something that maybe we don't contemplate often enough, but it was... Something I read and it reminded me of it this week, and, and, and the author essentially said this. I'll just reframe it in my own words. God is holy, and therefore God cannot sin. And if God cannot sin, that means that God cannot sin against you. God can never do anything to sin against you, which means that you must always trust him. He cannot do you wrong. He cannot sin against you. And he cannot in any way, though it be a painful providence, cause something that will be to your ultimate harm if he has called you and you love him and you're called according to his purpose. Now, by way of review, what we did talk about last week was simply the context of the entire verse, the meaning of the verse, and the significance of the verse. The context of the verse fitting there within the larger section of Romans 8 that talks about the futility of this fallen world and all of the persecution that can come to you as a believer. The, the meaning of the verse, which was pretty straightforward, it means that you have already settled in your mind the objective knowledge that if you are called by God and if you love him, and that's the same thing, it just means you're a Christian, that all things, everything, without exception, will work together eventually, maybe in your lifetime, maybe, you, maybe not, you might not understand it all, but for what is intrinsically good, morally good, intrinsically good, ultimately good, eternally good, not just, not just good in our way of using the word good. It's not just the bumper sticker, life is good. It's not just the song I grew up with when I was a kid that all I know is that everything is going to be fine, fine, fine. It's not going to be fine, fine, fine for a lot of people who are not in Christ. There's no promise given to them, only for those who are his. But it does lead to two very important questions. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to ask two questions on your behalf. I'd like to answer them from the Bible. And then I would like to apply the message by looking at Five examples of people whose bad situation, even sinful situation, resulted in good. So I'm going to ask two questions. I'm going to answer them. 
And then I'm going to give you five examples. And they're all women from the Old Testament. It's a really interesting little side tour that we're going to take, but I think it's appropriate in understanding this verse. So by way of anchoring our thoughts, let's go back. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is God's word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Two, two questions come up. Number one, can a child of God fail to love him as he should? Can a child of God who is set apart, who is a Christian, who is born again, who is saved, fail to do what is in this verse, to love God? Is it possible for you to not love God? And the answer is yes. There are times in your life where you will fail to love him the way that you're supposed to love him. There are many examples of this in the Bible. I'm going to give you just a couple, and they typically, they typically come around the idea of false teaching. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, you don't have to turn here, but maybe jot these down. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, there's this amazing statement that Paul makes about two false teachers that were ravishing the people in Ephesus. And, and he says that Hymenaeus and Alexander have made a shipwreck of the faith. Now, he says, I'm going to hand them over to Satan to learn not to blaspheme. When you hand somebody over to Satan to learn not to blaspheme, it means that this person, through the discipline that comes, through Satan being granted access to them to punish them, to sift them, as was the case with Peter, Jesus said, to inflict upon them whatever it is that, that he wants to inflict upon them, like he did with Job, it is meant to say that through that they would learn not to blaspheme. Now, you might not have heard it interpreted this way before, but it's quite possible that these two though they had made a shipwreck of the faith, had not lost the faith. And that to learn not to blaspheme is to learn their lesson about what they had done. There is a possibility that even these false teachers could have been at some point redeemed and restored, that they had gone off track, but they are not indicative of somebody who was never saved in the first place. Now that might be hard to understand with someone like Hymenaeus and Alexander, but how much more so with someone like Peter? If you go back into your Bibles in Galatians chapter 2, the, Galatians chapter 2 is one of my favorite chapters because it shows what Paul was really like. Paul, Paul basically goes to the apostles and he tells them about the gospel he's been preaching. Because when he got saved, he went right away to Arabia, began preaching the gospel, and for a long, long time was out there as a missionary. They call him back in, kind of like to, um, to headquarters. Like he's sort of a, a rogue missionary. And so they got to bring him in, and they got to test him out, make sure that everything's, uh, I was going to say kosher, but he's, that wouldn't be the right word, would it? Um, wouldn't be kosher. Uh, but anyway, they want to make sure he's preaching a true gospel, and so they bring him in, and he makes this amazing statement in Galatians 2. He's like, yeah, they pulled me in because they were all, like, influential. And he, it's all sarcastic. He goes, I don't know what influential even means. I don't really care. To me, they're just like anybody else. But I went in, and I gave my little speech to the apostles to make sure that I was preaching a true gospel. And then in verses 11 through 14, he tells a story about how he actually had to get in Peter's face and tell him that he was in sin because he wasn't preaching the true gospel. That ironically, the very people that are, that are, that are investigating him, he says, there was a time when I had to withstand Peter to his face. 
He said, you're saying one thing with this group and another thing with this group. You're acting one way with the Gentiles and one way with the Jews. You're living out your freedom and you're, you know, doing whatever you want to do as a Gentile. You're not following all the strict religious dietary laws and Jewish laws. You know, you're eating pork chops on the Sabbath. And then, all of a sudden, the Jews roll in and you start acting like you don't know these Gentiles. And Paul calls him out. Now, what is that? That's somebody who has not only lost sight of the gospel, but is not really loving God the way they should. And there's one more example, and that comes at the end of Jude. And I love how Jude, he's such a careful teacher. He says that there are going to be people in the church that struggle from time to time, and instead of throwing them away, instead of shooting our wounded, we need to come around those who are struggling. Look, if there's ever been a season where I've seen believers struggling, it's been this last year, many of which have really struggled because they've been out of fellowship. They've, they've, been, they've been disconnected from the body. Uh, they've been struggling with their own fears and their own doubts and, and just life in general. It's been hard on them. And, and for some of them, it's really caused their spiritual growth to uh, falter and to suffer. And Paul says, what do you do with those? Or, or, or the Jude, actually his name is Judas, but they didn't want to translate Judas because you don't want a book of the Bible named Judas. So they called him Jude. Jude writes in Jude 17 through 23 that that we are to be patient and gracious with those people, with the ones who doubt, with the ones who are snatched out of the fire, he says, with the ones whose garments are stained with all the filth and debris of the world. He doesn't say those people are unsaved. He just says that you get themselves into this mess and you've got to lovingly, graciously pull them out. Um, Because I'm a pastor, people um, send me things a lot. Uh, email me stuff, and, and um, I got emailed this video that you've probably all seen, because I think it's what people imagine pastoring is like, and there's this, um, some of you aren't, some of you, you already know where I'm going with this, I think, so there's this like video of a, of a sheep that's like wedged in this ditch beside the road, you ever seen this? And so this young guy goes up there, and this, this sheep is like wedged in there, and the guy goes over and he grabs the back leg and he pulls, 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 he pulls the sheep out of there. And the sheep, finally free from this life-threatening situation, goes running up the road and goes to jump over the ditch and goes right back into it. And, and, and you know, people say, oh, that must be what it's like to be a pastor. I'm like, that's what it's like to be me. <laughs> like, like that, that, I get that. I I get what it's like to be in that spot and be rescued, and then five seconds later, you're right back there again. But but what do you do in those situations when when your love for God fails, when when you're not lining up with what he's asked you to do? The reality is that you come around those people with with compassion and with grace. You don't beat them over the head with their, their failure to live up to some external standard. Yes, there's repentance. Yes, there's a need to sometimes be chastened by God, but There's never an abandonment. So number one, can children of God fail to love him as they should? Yes, they can. Uh, But they're to be restored graciously, even as uh, we read also in Galatians. And number two, can a child of God be called to suffer? This is maybe even more difficult. Can a child of God be called to suffer? I think we need to understand what the will of God is and what that really means. The will of God doesn't mean that everything is going to go the way you want it to go. That God's will, God's will is your happiness. One of the things that you realize when you become a grown-up Christian is that God's will is not your happiness. 
God's will is God's will. You conform your mind and your thinking, your attitudes to his will. He doesn't conform his will to your preferences. And so 1 Peter 4.19 is a verse you need to know because it says that even if we suffer according to his will, can I be called according to his purpose and still suffer? Yes, because you're called to suffer, it says, according to his will. What do you do? You entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. You entrust your soul to him while continuing to do the things that he has called you to do. And then I'll give you one more verse. And then we'll get back here into to Romans. But just one more verse to clarify what it means for us to love God and to be called according to his purpose. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In this section, Paul is reminding us of just how brief life is and, and, and how difficult it can be and how filled with trials it can be. And beginning in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians... Verse 16, this is an encouragement if you're struggling today. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. What is going on in your life? Whatever it is, it's working together to create an eternal weight of glory. And he's not necessarily going to let you peek behind the curtain to see what that is like until you actually enter into that glory, at which point you will know for sure that what he said in his word was true. Now, I believe that that is the case in particular for five women in the Old Testament. And I came across these five examples because I was intentionally trying to use examples that are not normally used when talking about this. So I'm going to give them to you right now. You can jot them down, and then there should be some slides that will show you the cross-references that will be helpful for you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back, and I drew them all out of the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And it's interesting because only Matthew mentions these women, the mothers, in the line of Jesus that leads to him being a, an official king through David's line. And, and, and there are four women mentioned in particular, and then I'm going to add one, which by default would fit in. And so we're going to look at them kind of in reverse order, going all the way back. So from the one closest to Christ, all the way back to the, the first. And in each case, these women set apart... Um, unusual for them to be mentioned in a genealogy, but absolutely pivotal characters in the unfolding story of redemptive history, and all of them with really checkered or, or questionable pasts. And, and, and there's this verse in 1 Corinthians that says, all of these things have happened, these examples of others are examples for you. And, and sometimes I hear, uh, I'm hearing something, really. Okay. Um, Sometimes I hear preachers say, well, well that means that, that all of those Old Testament examples are, are used just so we understand some New Testament truth. And the Old Testament, like two-thirds of your Bible, becomes nothing but this place for Old Testament sermon illustrations. But that's not what Paul is saying. He is saying that everything in the Old Testament 
shows you that in Christ it is fulfilled in the New Testament and that all of this is happening together in the grand arc of redemptive history from creation to the fall to redemption to restoration. And so these five examples all lead to the glorious redemption and restoration that we'll have when Christ comes back for us. So the first one is Bathsheba. The first one is Bathsheba. In the list of... uh, Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, Bathsheba is mentioned. Now, she is called the wife of Uriah, but obviously, you know, we're talking about Bathsheba. What is her situation? Well, you wouldn't be able to say that her whole life was nothing but good. You know, here she is, a a woman who was minding her own business, having a bath on the rooftop, when the most powerful man in the known world at that time orders that she be brought to him so that he could sleep with her. I mean, this is not something that anybody would wish to have upon themselves. And there was no way for her to say no. It's not like she was in a position to rebel against him. We had no idea what kind of fight she put up with all of this. Either way, the situation occurred. David sins. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. It gets worse. She goes back home. And as a result of David's desire to cover up his own sin, arranges for her husband to be killed. And so what you have is a dark season in this particular kingdom because you have a king who has committed adultery, a king who has committed murder, a king who as a result of his sin leads to the death of the son that was born to Bathsheba. And yet her name is listed among the women in the genealogy because you are meant to read that and see that even in the midst of that horrible situation, God was working out all things for good. Because without the sin with David, there would be no Psalm 51. Without the sin with David, there would be no Solomon. And God working these things together, not merely taking a bad situation and finding a way to make it good, but ordaining before the foundation of the world that even these things might occur, that his glorious will and purposes would be accomplished. Now that's a pretty amazing story, isn't it? But you can back it up one more and realize there would be no David if there were no Ruth. Ruth is the next one that I want you to see. Ruth, and the entire book of Ruth, is the story of this Moabite woman, a woman who was unclean in the eyes of the Jewish people, a woman who was part of a group of people who were judged and cursed and condemned by God, and they weren't allowed to even come into the assembly of the people for ten generations. I mean, she was the biggest outcast you can imagine. An amazing woman, a valiant woman, In fact, the Proverbs 31 woman might even be a reference to Ruth because that's the other time that the valiant nature of this woman is mentioned. Every other time the word valiant is used, it's used to describe mighty men of war. That's a whole side issue. But here she is. She is this woman that is considered an outcast, and yet because of her loyalty and her love to Naomi, God sees fit to allow her to find Boaz, and Boaz falls in love with her. They get married, and through their line comes David. Now, now listen to this. Everything in her life up until that point could have been seen as dark and bleak and bad. Here she is in a foreign nation. These foreigners come in from Israel. She marries one of their sons, Malon. He ends up dying. Now she goes back with her mother-in-law. She's got no husband. She's got no hope. She's got no money. She's got no reputation. She's got no friends. She's a complete uh, outcast in that society. And yet God is working all of it for good. Now, out of that discussion of Ruth, we back up and we see that there was another name in that list, and that's Rahab. Now it gets really interesting. 
Rahab. Rahab, as you know, was, what was her profession? She's a prostitute. Rahab receives the, the, the two spies as they come in, and they're spying out the land, and, and she agrees to hide them, and she tells them how to get out of town, how to escape, how to get back to Israel, to declare to them how it is they could come in and take the city. She's a prostitute. She is a person who, even in that society, would not have been well thought of, and yet God uses her, even in her profession, even with her lie, to do what is good. Takes what is evil and turns into good. All things working together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Does it excuse the sin? No. He doesn't whitewash the sin. He doesn't say that it wasn't wrong. He doesn't applaud her for lying. He doesn't even condone her behavior. But what he says is that I am bigger than all of that and it is working together for good. And you can read more about her in Hebrews 11.31 and then over in James chapter 2 as well where, where she is, is held out as, as honorable. Uh, she is somebody who we look to as an example of faith. This woman who was, again, a Gentile, one of the people that had been cursed by God, yet because of her faithfulness, these spies made a promise to her and that as long as she hung this red cord out the window, that her and her family, if they're in the apartment, they would be spared. He says, don't let them run outside, because if they die, that's their problem. But we can guarantee you that if they stay in the apartment, they'll be okay. Do you realize that they live in the wall? The entire city is decimated. All the people are killed. The walls all fall down, except for this one apartment that remains standing with the red cord hanging out, an example of God's faithfulness to work out all things together for good. Now, there was another prostitute in this line, and she comes even before Rahab, and that is Tamar. Tamar. Now, when you look at Tamar, Tamar was somebody who was involved in prostitution, but not exactly for the same reasons or in the same way. Tamar is somebody who had been taken advantage of by Judah. Uh, Judah, one of the patriarchs, had given her one of his sons, and that son died because of sin, and then another son, and that son died because of sin, and then he doesn't want to give her the, the last son, which was the way it was supposed to go. And so what she does is she dresses up as a prostitute. And when Judah goes to shear his sheep and he's out of town, uh, he decides that he is going to go and spend the night with this temple prostitute. And as a result, leaves her with some of his belongings in order to secure the price of her services, which was a goat that he would send later. And it turns out that what had happened was this daughter-in-law, dressed up as a prostitute, ended up luring him, and he went and slept with her, and then she became pregnant. And it's revealed later on that she's pregnant, and he doesn't know that it's by him, and so what he does is he acts in self-righteous outrage against her and says that she is nothing but a harlot and she should be stoned, and then she produces what he had given her. She says, you're the father. And he says something so remarkable. He says, you know what? This woman's more righteous than me. And God worked that sin. By the way, he doesn't condone the sin. He doesn't say the sin is fine. He doesn't say the end justifies the means. But what he does tell us is that all of that is working out together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I've got one more. We talked about these four ladies. We're going back, back, back. 
We're going to go back to the very beginning so that I can go to the very end. Go back to the very beginning. And who do we talk about? We talk about Eve. Eve was another example. If, if there is any sin that we could say is a sin, it's the first sin. The first was the worst. The first sin was the sin that brought sin into the world. She is guilty of that. She, she is the one who, because she was deceived by Satan, took of that fruit and, and, and defied the law of God. Didn't believe him. Didn't trust him. And didn't believe that he could only do good for her. And so as a result, plunged the entire human race into sin. That is true. But I am so grateful for Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 says that there will come a day when one of your offspring will crush the head of this serpent that just deceived you into plunging the world into sin. Did God know ahead of time that she would sin? Of course he did, because we know that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. We know that the elect were chosen before the foundation of the world. We know that all of his purposes were ordained before the foundation of the world. None of this caught him off guard. All of it was working together for good. You say, how? Let me show you, because I want you to see this verse. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. 1 Timothy 2, verse 15. I go to 1 Timothy 2, verse 15, because John 3.16 doesn't make sense without Genesis 3.15. John 3.16 doesn't make any sense without Genesis 3.15, and John 3.16 is explained by 1 Timothy 2.15. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. We're talking about Eve. It says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she, the antecedent of she, is Eve. There's no other way in the Greek grammar to interpret this verse. She refers to Eve. She will be saved, and saved means saved. That's all that it means. She will be saved, rescued, redeemed through childbearing. This is not teaching that somehow the role of women in this world at its zenith is childbearing. There's a bizarre obsession with that, even in some Christian circles, that a woman's purpose in being created in the image of God is not fulfilled unless she's a wife and a mother. No, her identity is not in her husband or in her children. Her identity is in Christ. Some women grow up pining away at home, waiting for some man to marry them and give them legitimacy for being on earth. It's absurd it's not what this verse is teaching. This verse is a clear explanation of what the promise in Genesis 3.15 was meant to be. This is the arc of redemptive history. This is taking the whole counsel of God, of Scripture, and then putting it in a way for us to understand. Eve sinned, yes, but in that sin, it was part of the ordained plan of God to bring about a redemption, not just for her, but for all who would put their faith in that Savior. That's why we sing today. That's why we're able to, 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 to say the, the words that we said today, even in our singing, because we have been the recipients of that same grace, the same salvation that rescued her is what rescues us. Now, for those of you who are resting now in perplexity over what the rest of this verse then means, I will just rescue you. It does transition to talk about women in general, they, plural, continue in the faith and love and holiness and self-control. There, there is a sense in which, yes, there, there is a model of what it looks like to be redeemed. So that's an important part of this as well. But there should be just a M dash between bearing and if in your Bible. It is awkward in the Greek grammar. It's awkward in the English. But there's two different 
subjects. One is Eve, the other is all other women. She will be saved through the bearing of children, which, according to Matthew 1, ultimately resulted in the birth of Christ. Now, those are five examples of what it means for all things to work together for good, even bad things. We see that played out in all of redemptive history. And I wish to encourage you this morning with this thought, that God hasn't changed. I don't know what's going on in each and every one of your lives. I know many of you. I don't know all of you. And even those of you I know pretty well, I don't know everything. But I promise you that if you are a believer, it is working together for good. I promise you that whatever it is, that it has been ordained before the foundation of the world and that it has a purpose beyond anything you can imagine and that you might not and likely won't fully understand why in this life. I, I tend to be tempted to, to want to correct people when they say something happened, a trial in their life, and they say, and now I see why God did that. I don't mean to discourage them, but I wish to say that might be part of it, but I, I, I suspect there's going to be way more. <laughs> I, I, I love the way that Ruth ends. I think maybe Ezra wrote Ruth, and, and, and it's almost like the author is kind of proud of themselves because they were able to track this all the way down, you know, to the birth of David as if, ah, see, there's the whole purpose of God. It was in the birth of David, and then we get to read it and go, ha, 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 if only you knew. Because through the Davidic covenant, it actually led all the way to Christ. I don't really know everything. I might know a little bit, a little glimpse. But let me encourage you this morning. If, if you're here and you brought in a burden with you this morning, a weight, and shame, and guilt, and, and maybe you come to church and, and you sort of take a defensive posture because you've been in so many churches where all you really get is beat up even more, where, where somebody just tries to drill into you the need to conform and to obey and to do more and more and more and earn God's favor, earn God's love. If that's your natural posture, if you're sort of defensive, can I encourage you just to put down your defenses for a moment and listen to what I have to tell you. Your past, whatever it is, I don't care if it involves prostitution or adultery, or abortion, or anything else that we've referenced here this morning. Whatever your past was, is working together for good if you love God and are called according to His purpose. Your past is part of what God uses to show how much He loves you and why He sent His Son to die for you. You don't clean yourself up enough to warrant his love. You receive it, and that makes you a new creature. So will you this morning receive his righteousness? Because it's the only righteousness that God's ever going to take into account. Will you repent of your sin 
turn and obey Him? And will you rest in His amazing grace that gives you the power to do that? And may that be the moment when you change forever and you never read this verse the same way again. Whether you're a believer for the first time today or you've been a believer for a long time, that when you open up your Bible and your eye falls down to Romans 8, 28, and you read these words, you see what they mean, you understand them in the context of redemption. And on days like today when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you say it's because of that child born through a lineage of sinners that my sins are forgiven. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for its clarity, for the objective knowledge that we can secure once and for all that is an anchor for our souls, for the description of salvation that we are the ones who love you because of the love with which you first loved us and the ones who are called by you and for you. The ones who are living out every day, even in this fallen world, in these fallen bodies, moment by moment, in perfect alignment with your eternal will and purposes. That for those who, who love you, for those who are called according to your purpose, for those who are born again, that all of those purposes are good for us, even if they are painful at times. As we prepare our hearts to receive symbols of, your bread, of the body and blood of the sacrifice that was made for us, I pray that we would be reminded this day that we come empty-handed we come covered in the rags of our own righteousness. We come really with <laughs> nothing to offer and, and only something to receive. For those of us that are your children, we know that receiving the bread and the cup doesn't secure us, doesn't infuse grace to us, certainly doesn't become your body or your blood. It doesn't require a priest to administer it. Simply a symbol and a reminder of the work, and we thank you that that work is a finished work, applied freely by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, for anyone who would receive it. May, may today be the day of salvation for those who have never yet received it. For it's in your name we pray.